0: Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Think of England by KJ Charles, the TV series Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, and the fanfic Theft of Assets, Destruction of Property by Helen Ish.
1: Welcome to episode eight, Once More with Feelings. I'm Alex, the oh no, there's only one bed at this inn and we have to share one.
0: I'm Freya, the sex first, oh no, we caught feelings one.
1: And I'm Macy, the fake marriage one. And before we proceed, dear listeners,
2: exciting news. We have a guest this week. Say hi. Hi. Hi, I'm Amanda. Amanda Jean. I'm an editor of queer romance and queer spec and I'm also the co-host of the queer media podcast, The Hopeless Romantic. And I am the Enemies to Lovers one. We are three redheaded
0: fantasy authors and a rogue romance editor.
2: I have to correct you on that because technically, there's four of us. One, I'm a redhead. Two, <laughs> I'm a Slytherin. Three, I'm part of your cult. Fantastic! Yes, yeah, so we're so on brand. Absolutely.
3: I, I feel like we cannot maintain this as a standard, though, for future guests.
2: You're just- Absolutely not. If we did, it would be a little bit racist. So let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. Just when, when you sign people up, just like, can I get your home address? Why? Because I need to ship you some hair dye.
1: Some hair dye. Just please hair- dye your hair before we get you on this podcast. Anyway, those <laughs> sure were a bunch of amazingly fun romance tropes we mentioned in our introductions. Fear not, we're going to get a lot deeper into that. But first, before we go on, what are we reading, fellow serpents?
0: I just finished reading Spirits Abroad, which is the short story collection by Zen Cho. I think it's one of my favourite things I've read so far this year. All the stories are really interesting and entertaining. She's got a really sort of chatty prose style, and a lot of them are based in the ghost stories and monsters of Malaysia, which is where she's from.
2: I'm reading The Tea Master and the Detective by Elliot de Baudard. I actually just started it. It's basically Asian female Sherlock Holmes in space, and none of that is uh, not my thing.
1: It's so good.
0: It's so good. I read it this week as well, actually.
1: And Macy, what are you reading? <laughs> when, Nothing. When she's I...
0: reading edits.
1: No, no, I did.
0: I read a book. I read a book. Are you proud of me?
1: we're very
3: proud of you what book was it the book was three dark crowns and it was a dark ya fantasy and i kind of really loved it three dark crowns kind of follows two three sisters who are triplets which is how every generation of queens is born on this island island and they have to kill each other in order to win the crown Yay! and it's it's really good and it's full of ruthless young women uh, doing things to survive and the kind of adults who are moving them around and how they push back against that.
1: So the book that I'm reading right now is Space Opera by Catherine Valente and it's incredible. It is all the things that I love about Eurovision and Douglas Adams set on fire and sprayed with 12 cans of dollar store body glitter and it's incredible. I'm having so much fun with it. I highly, highly recommend it and I'm only a quarter of the way through it so far. Now, enough puttering about let's talk about our feelings. feelings feelings so i don't
0: think we really need to define terms too hard at the beginning of this episode but i did want to say that we're going to be focusing on romance related feelings
1: that's the rule <laughs> for this episode you can't say you can't say feelings you have to say feelings can I exactly. say it in a golem voice though
0: no feelings.
1: <laughs> yes, i can't do it <laughs> Anyway, Freya, Freya, you're in charge of this episode. Take it away. Uh,
0: So more specifically, we wanted to have a look at how profic and also fanfic authors induce feelings, however many E's you want to put in in us, Uh, especially thinking about romantic tropes and how tropes can be used to manipulate our feelings, even though we know exactly what's going to happen in whatever it is that we are reading. So I know that all of us have experience in writing something to do with romance as well. So, Macy, you've got a, an FF romantic storyline in your YA novel. I, I do, but I will say that I kind of do it by accident and have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm going to be
3: over here sitting in the corner going, but how? <laughs> <laughs> because like, lots of people tell me, they like, oh, I really ship your romantic pairing. And I'm like, that's really good. I'm
0: glad. But can you point, can you point to which paragraph? That would be lovely. <laughs> and Alex, you certainly have a lot of romantic feelings.
1: I have a, I have a lot of feelings, period. I know. <laughs> uh, so when it
0: comes to writing romance, uh, so Amanda and I have a little bit more experience on that side of the coin, I think, because mm-hmm. the book, certainly the book that I have written and the books that I am planning at the moment are very much based around a romance structure, even though they are kind of tipping their heads over into other genres Uh, which is a fight that I will have with some editors one day, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, And Amanda, obviously, by by what she's already said, is extremely experienced in terms of editing and also talking about romance and writing a bit as well.
2: Yeah. I uh, I edit all over the sort of romance spectrum, but primarily queer romance, so that's where I'm comfortable, and that's what I write as well. The only thing I really haven't done is a ton of YA, but pretty much everything else... Well, I mean, we're going out of character for this episode because one of our tentpoles
3: is actually a straight one. Yeah. Getting the heterosexuals up in yes, yes, we've got to get we've got to make sure that we have representation across the spectrum. Okay,
2: <laughs> also, important. if you're trying to tell me that Freyney yeah. is straight, there's I'm not, I don't believe that. That's yeah. fine. Also, that is completely correct. Also, I am your token heterosexual. I don't know that we need any more representation
1: than that. So, <laughs>
3: well, okay, can I can we have the argument about Freyney because I maintain, given Freyney, she would have been with a woman on the show if she wanted to.
1: Hang on, real quick, real quick. Who are we talking about? Who are, should we let our listeners know yeah. who the fuck we're talking <laughs> Very about? Very briefly,
0: for our poor listeners, our three temples this week are the TV show Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, the book Think of England by KJ Charles, and a fanfic called Theft of Assets, Destruction of Property by Helen Ish. We will talk about them more as they come up, but we are talking about, currently... Oh, my poor dot points. Uh, Friday Fisher, <laughs> the protagonist of the 1930s Australian set murder mystery show, Miss Fisher, which we have all seen and all adore. I, I yes. apologize, Freya. We can return to your bullet points now. No, that's okay. We've already <laughs> continued talking about how Friday is bisexual. I'm really happy to no, no, stay no. here for a while.
2: I, I, I have said my piece. I think that you're right, but I also think that it's it's... Maybe not what she, I mean, especially at the time, it's not something she might identify with, because sexuality was more something that you did, not who you were mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at that time. Um, That's true. Uh, but I would argue that she certainly has. I get that vibe. My queer dar dings. And I just don't think she's too terribly fussed about labels. I think she probably enjoys masculine people more, but I don't think it's off the table for her.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think she... She's definitely, definitely male leaning, given that like she spends all of her time around her friend, Mac, who is definitely a woman attracted predominantly or exclusively to other women complaining yeah. about men. And you yes. can just see Mac just sort of sitting there trying not to say, just come over here, dear. It'll be okay. <laughs> women are so much better.
3: But uh, we should also uh, note for our darling listeners spoilers. Spoilers for everything. Oh, ever. yes. We will spoilers spoil for things. all of those. Not just those. We will spoil other random things. If anything has a romantic relationship in it, we might spoil it. You will just yeah, have to just find out. Just in case you
1: haven't listened to any of our other episodes, this is spoiler tasks. <laughs> it
0: is. But It also brings up that you, whether you can actually spoil. A romance narrative because you kind of know where it's going that's true and we're going to talk about that a little bit later I think in terms of like happy ever afters and things
2: well also I think we're talking about romance with a capital R versus something that has a romance narrative yes, in it that's... but that is also a thing for later do we
0: want to start with well I think we can probably start there I mean some of the notes we had here was just talking about it's interesting thinking about romance as a genre so capital R romance And fan fiction, which we obviously want to talk about a lot because both of those are genres or areas of literature which are predominantly female spaces Mm. and which are often looked down upon or ridiculed in some ways or considered not particularly serious. But at the same time, those are the areas where we sort of find ourselves going feelings the most. (laughs) Would you agree? Oh, I don't
3: know, Freya. I think military SF is very feeling.
0: <laughs> well, look, All you can get some battles. people, you can get someone like, you know, McMaster Bujol yes. doing the Mokosigan Saga, which magically manages to insert some very good romance storylines into it. But yes, it
3: is well, still
1: military SF.
3: And I think that that's kind of a question then that I have for those of you who, who are on the romance uh, official side of things. What What is the difference between capital R romance and a romance plot line?
2: Amanda, how about you take this one? Sure. Uh, well, the 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 main definitive genre convention of romance, capital R, is that there is going to be either a happily ever after or a happily for now. Pretty much that is the deciding factor, but there are a lot of tropes and beats and caveats that play into that as well. But generally speaking... Romance is defined by its guarantee of uh, a non-tragic ending, and specifically a non-tragic ending referring to the romance itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas even if you have like a lovely, uplifting, adorable romance in something that is another genre, there's no guarantee of that, even if it happens, even if it turns out to be a happily ever after or a happily for now.
0: And there's also this expectation within the genre that you will hit certain beats along the way. And this was something that I found very interesting when I was first looking into romance as a genre because I'm fairly new to it. And actually, your podcast, Amanda, was one of the first times I actually started thinking about what the expectations are within the genre from readers, from writers. And then I started looking up things like uh, The Smart Bitches, Trashy Books, their book, what was it um, Beyond Heaving Bosoms, I think?
3: Yeah, that is a great title.
0: Is a great title. It's a good book if you're interested in romance as a genre and the history of it and what sort of things are going on in it. And then I looked did, dug a little bit deeper and with some friends of mine who wrote romance and found out about the beats that are expected within romance. And it was fascinating to me because certainly with a happy ever after you know that that's where it's ending up but you want to be entertained along the way. But when I came across this idea of expected beats as well, it did seem almost counterintuitive, this idea that you have to follow a certain tension and a certain structure so that it would become even more predictable But yet it's still a way of producing feelings around those beats. So how do you think that's done?
2: It's done in a couple different ways. Uh, One of the interesting things about romance with a capital R is that the beats are so predictable. They're so saturated in the genre that there are literally beat sheets where you can plug in, for example, your novel is going to be 60,000 words. You can plug that in and then the beat sheet will calculate exactly where you need to have your first crisis point, where you need to have your characters meet, where you need to have act two end, where you need the black moment. Like, it will tell you to the page where this needs to happen. And obviously you can take liberties with that. But when we're talking about beats in romance, we're talking about that solid structure. Um, it's similar almost to like a mystery novel. It has those very iconic whodunit beats. Like, there, there isn't a lot of... I don't want to I don't want to condemn the genre by saying that it isn't experimental. It can be, but it's very much following the tried and true formulas that came before it. And that's why romance gets called formulaic so much because it is. That's not necessarily a bad thing because as Freya pointed out, like that is what helps to shape the the emotional reactions around it. It's almost like romance has a job to do, right? It has a job yeah. to induce a
3: certain set of feelings in the reader. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts, like, do these beats, do you see them appearing in things like fanfiction when fanfiction is a clearly a romance fanfiction? Because there are different genres even within fic. But you have fics that are very clearly, you know, this is a meat cute steric mm-hmm. fic, and you know it's going <laughs> to end happily ever after, and they're probably going to adopt something. <laughs>
2: A wolf, a human. Yeah, you know like
3: a kaiju with these two, you never know. Right, <laughs> but do you see Do you, do you you see romance, like capital R romance
2: beats appearing in fan fiction? Yeah, all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think fix themselves may not have all of them in the way that a romance novel would be expected to, mm-hmm. or in a way that a romance, like a pro-romance, even novella would be expected to cover all of those beats, at least fleetingly. I think in fanfic the beats are definitely there but you might only see a portion Mm -hmm. of that story like you might if people are looking for a really cozy story they may not actually be much in the way of internal conflict at all
2: yeah
1: it's a little of a looser interpretation
2: well it's also it it has to do with how aware fanfic authors are of what uh, genre conventions are for Mm. romance that's true um if they're super well versed in it yeah they might they might set out looking to hit every single one from the inciting incident forward but if they're just like oh i want to write you know a Meet cute, they've read enough fic and maybe they've read enough romance novels or just by osmosis gathered enough of the sort of relevant data to be able to steer their way through a fic without actually knowing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the cool things about fic is like you can just try stuff, you don't have to put your word count into a beat sheet and sort of see what the numbers spit out. You can just be like, Well, I was doing this, but over here I'm going to have them go shopping for curtains. <laughs> and I don't care if it derails. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I
0: think you're right. I did that absolutely accidentally. The most rom com feat that I have actually written was a Brooklyn 99 one where I very deliberately was like, I'm going to write tropes. And so I was like, right, they're going to wake up married. They're going to be fake married. Like it's going to have, like, it has all of the ridiculous marriage tropes in it. <laughs>
3: you said fake married for wake up married. So which. No, day? no,
0: no. It's both. Oh, it's it's literally both. How? They do, they do wake up married, and then they do a fake relationship as part of that ah, later on, but it's separate. If they're actually legally married, can it be a fake marriage? It's fake dating, because they're pretending to be in love and they're not. Aha! Uh-huh. So it can be fake if they're actually married. Yes, but it's two different tropes <laughs> that I layered on top of, that I stacked on top of each other like beautiful trope lasagna. What's your <laughs> But I was, I was making it up as I went based on having read a ton of very tropey fanfiction. fan fiction. So I wasn't actually pl- planning beats. But if I go back and look at it now, I clearly, there was some part of me saying, okay, well, at this point, they need to have a misunderstanding. And now they need to, you know, have ill-advised sex on the couch. And then they need to, you know, break up and have their dark moments. And then there needs to be a dramatic rescue. Like it was all in there, but I didn't know anything about the beats that I was kind of accidentally following. And probably if you put it into the beat sheet, the word count would be wrong.
3: Fair. Is, this where, is, is this where I get to, to make the joke about the meaty filling?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is the meaty filling in this particular lasagna, Macy? I had a Jake, presumably. <laughs> <coughs> no?
3: I'm
1: sorry, that was
0: some tea. That was some tea going around down the wrong way. <laughs> Fine. 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 But I think, I what you were saying then about, you know, fanfic and experimentation is a really interesting one because we there's so much repetition in fanfic and there's so much out there. You know, you can have the same coffee shop AU or the same pairing written 20 different ways. So there's a lot of repetition, but at the same time, because there isn't that expectation, nobody is. No editor is coming in from the outside and saying, oh, well, you know, your your dark spot is in the wrong place. It means that there really is something there for everybody.
3: So I think that though, we wanted to talk a little bit about what some of the main Banfic tropes are versus some of the main romance novel tropes.
0: And, you know, are they the same? Are they different? Where are the differences? I think a lot of them are the same, or a lot of the, very, the popular ones are the same. Mm-hmm. And certainly if you look at, if you go onto a romance press site or look at romances on Amazon, a lot of them are arranged by these tropes in the same way that, that hmm. you can tag something by a trope on AO3. So all the ones that we have talked about with fake dating, fake marriage, versus marriage of convenience, versus (laughs) woke up married, all different things. (laughs) Fight me. (laughs) Obviously, friends to lovers, uh, enemies to lovers or rivals to lovers. Everybody loves pining. I
3: have a question. Yes. I have a question. Amanda, it's for you as well. Are there professional romance novels with Canada Cabin? Oh, yes.
2: Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yes. Check. yeah, yeah, Canadian <gasps> shack. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. T- peeling off your clothes and like huddling for warmth yep. and <gasps> hypothermia and amnesia. Huddling for warmth is a fucking classic. Oh,
3: okay, secondary question. Secondary
2: question. What percentage of these involve bears as part of the pairing? As part of the pairing? Well, wait. You have to define bears. Do you <laughs> yeah. mean like a big burly man, <laughs> or do you mean a literal bear, or do you mean a bear shapeshifter? <laughs> How to be specific about these things, I, I'm
3: most concerned to avoid the ones that have the always a bear as part of like a literal
2: bear as part of the pen. There's a does this happen a lot to you? There's literally saying? a famous like romance fantasy novel. I remember
0: that was on Tumblr. It was like it's like a famous Canadian novel or something, and possibly the bear is a metaphor, but maybe
3: yeah. yes,
2: it's one awards. And there's... no, I it, she fucked the bear, she fucked the bear, <laughs> it's true.
3: But I heard there were at least two, there are at least two award winning Canadian novels about getting fucked by a bear
1: you learn something new every day
3: anyway sorry there are other yes that we prefer to the fucked by a bear trope yep. which is not a trope
0: <laughs> and, and obviously you can combine <laughs> tropes to great effect so one of the temples that we were going to talk about is <laughs> one of my favorite romance novels of all time think of england by kj charles
1: would you say that it is your top favorite freya if you had to pick only one favorite romance
2: novel what would it be? You can only pick not one. not this one. Yeah. It's not. Oh, see, Captain Prince. Captain Prince isn't a romance novel. What? It is a romance, but it's
0: technically a fantasy novel. That's
2: not fair. Yeah, it's it's in a weird Venn diagram. It's not technically classified as romance, but it gets shelved there. I'm going to take Mercy on
1: Freya. What is your favorite? Top number one favorite pure romance novel.
2: (laughs)
0: Definitely Think of England. Okay, cool. So Think of England is a standalone MM romance set in the Edwardian era, and it is a beautiful demonstration of that sort of Edwardian or late Victorian house party narrative, very sort of, you know, like the Jeeves and Worcester kind of scenario, except it is about two men who are at the house party for very different reasons and find themselves working towards a common goal against a group of bad people, and it has so many tropes in it that I love.
1: What are some of the tropes that it has? So it has
0: forced proximity in that they're both kind of, not necessarily stranded, but they are both at this house party, so it's an enclosed environment that they both have to exist in, and they have to interact with each other. There is also some more uh, intimate forced proximity (laughs) later on. There is the always classic, oh no, we have to kiss to avert suspicion. To look like we were just here having a romantic interlude and then they progress to the hard mode, which is, oh no, we have to have a blowjob to avert suspicion, (laughs) (laughs) which is amazing. It has hurt comfort. It definitely has huddling for warmth. Um, And it is obviously a part of the it's just sex, brackets, to avert suspicion oh no we caught feelings <laughs> so it's basically perfect for me i love it
2: i know exactly who you love <sighs> you love the slinky jewish poet with a nipple ring
0: yeah yeah basically <laughs> he is a bit one of the slytherin protagonists of my heart although and i like particularly that you don't get to see his point of view it's yes. one of those rare romances where you do actually only get a single point of view which works very well here because he is a very secret keeping kind of character it's the same with captive mm-hmm. prince you don't get the point of view of the one who is keeping the most secrets and that maintains attention really well
1: the other main character archie is an unreliable narrator in that he is completely oblivious to his own feelings for a lot of the books so
0: oblivious
2: <laughs> oh bless him he's so annoyed by daniel and he just really wants to kiss him and doesn't understand <laughs> he's just like oh i can't stand this man they are such a good representation
0: of that thing in in romance novels of these two with very different worldviews who keep coming at one another from the wrong angle because they literally don't understand how the other person thinks. From Daniel's point of view, Archie is this completely ridiculously straightforward, says what he means, you know, acts decently. And That's just a very alien idea to
1: someone like Daniel.
2: Yeah, he's also a bit of a stick in the mud. Mm-hmm. He's 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 earnest and serious and kind of a stick in the mud. And I don't know this. He's
1: very he's very British. Yes. Oi. <laughs>
2: well,
0: that's the whole point of the the title of Think of England is that it's examining that idea of the stiff upper lip and you know, lie back, think of England. Hey,
2: yeah.
0: There's like a, well, yeah, used exactly in that way in the book. And obviously that's one of the things I think that elicits feelings in us is watching a character like that discover their more central side and their own feelings and be kind of chipped away at.
1: And yeah. I think that one of the, the things here is the that causes feelings in the reader is us being aware of how the novel is going to go, us being aware of Archie's feelings even when he himself isn't aware of it, and then the frustration that we get yes. when we are thwarted from, uh, from witnessing it as soon as we want it. Like but- we are left wanting because we, we can see it, we can yearn for it. And the author plays keep away with us for a little while. And that makes us want it more. Speaking of which. Speaking of which, that leads us neatly into our next TED which is Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which is, uh, as Freya mentioned, set in the 1930s, Australia and it is about a badass, completely glamorous lady detective. Side note, if anyone has like $2,000 that is just lying around and would like to buy me a silver fox fur stole, <laughs> you are more than welcome to do so. I desperately want one.
3: Franny's wardrobe is ridiculous.
1: Fi- Franny's oh, wardrobe so is literally perfect. But there's this silver fox fur shawl that she has, and I am filled with lust for it. Uh, One day, one day. What? And then I will just wander around my house completely Shh. naked, except for the silver fox fur stole. Alex, how many roommates do you have? Right now, just one, but she's super cool and she wouldn't mind me doing that at all.
3: <laughs> we should probably also mention that Miss Fisher's is a TV
1: show, which I don't think we say. Oh, yes, it is. And as I was saying, the, the frustration comes from Miss Fisher, the, the lady detective, has a... So in, in Sherlock terms, she's the Sherlock, and uh, Jack, the detective, is the Lestrade. There is a yes. Watson character here. Uh, what's her name? Dot. 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 That's right, Dot. And she and Frinny have an amazing, beautiful friendship. But the romance is between Frinny and... Jack Robinson. Detective Inspector. Jack. Yeah, Jack Robinson. Detective uh, Inspector Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> Inspector Robinson. And... I, how long does it take for them to for them to kiss like three seasons? Uh, No. <laughs> no, they kiss once and they're like, this was a mistake. Oh,
2: that's but right. But they're kissing. They're kissing to avert suspicion. Oh, they do kiss to avert suspicion. I forgot that. Yes, they do. They <gasps> kiss to avert suspicion in season one and then they kiss in, I believe, season three once and then again in season three. I, I'm pretty sure that that is the correct number of kisses. I'm pretty sure. That sounds right to me as well. And the whole time, you know, like
1: all the way through season one, you're wanting them to kiss because they have this amazing, intense flirtation going on and they both know that they're flirting. They yeah. they don't want to admit it outright. They're not that. I mean, well, Franny definitely is that kind of people. She's extremely straightforward, but Jack definitely is not. And it's sort of wonderful to watch him get more and more comfortable flirting with Friday as the show progresses and I think that he kind of has to do that character growth himself to be in a place where he can meet Friday in the middle
3: and I think that it's a wonderful example of how much of feelings in a visual medium is really dependent on chemistry between the actors oh yes because you gotta look at them and look at season one and think the writers wrote to this the writers looked at this gift of a partnership that they had between these two actors and they said, wow, we're going to milk this for everything it's got. Hell yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. And then they basically just realized that they could do almost nothing except put them in a scene together with no dialogue and just have them have eye sex.
1: Yeah. Oh, God, the eye sex in this show. Long, long minutes. There's so much eye fucking. There's so <laughs> much eye fucking in this show. And it's, I think if I had to pick one show to be like, the top grade A, I fucking it would be this show. They
0: drag it out so beautifully. You get to the third season and you are basically rolling around on the ground,
1: like please, please just, please. just push your faces together, please.
2: And at that point, too, I, at least speaking for me and the people I watched uh, Miss Fisher with, we were so invested in their friendship and their broader relationship that it wasn't even the kissing, although god (laughs) i screamed and like launched myself from my chair during one of those kisses and sort of melted on the floor but it was more just like i wanted them to sit down and acknowledge the powerful uh dynamic Mm. that they had and how important they were to each other Mm. and they're both cagey about it for a long time as much as they're flirtatious they definitely don't have a lot of moments where they sit down and actually acknowledge the thing that's between them um which is another reason yes. why that unresolved sexual and romantic tension lasted so long because they just had so many reasons not to put it on the table because then they would have to do something about it and that might end badly and
0: i like that they they do acknowledge that as a like that tension as a as something that they are consciously just choosing together not to address yes. that thing where she's coming down and he says you know perhaps at a, a different time a less dangerous hour in a less lethal dress like he's putting it out there and (laughs) she knows and he knows and they have to they've agreed that they're just not going to talk about it and meanwhile our feelings just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger
1: yeah and Jack is definitely the one who is more cautious about it
2: yes well he has he has more I mean Franny has quite a bit of baggage but it's not so much related around emotional intimacy it's he has just a whole truckload of baggage that goes back to the war and also goes back to his failed marriage and he's just a very you know he's a he's a good man he's a little repressed he's got all of this secret damage he's got the stiff upper lip and you know they're very much opposites in that way she doesn't handle her damage in the same way both of them throughout the three seasons have to sort of get to a middle point where they can comfortably deal with their damage to be able to have an honest conversation that wouldn't be destructive to their friendship.
0: Yeah, it's it's not that they're being kept apart for no reason, because part of Franny's personality, and she's very unapologetic about it, is that she's not looking to settle down with one person. And she really respects Jack's decency, and she thinks of him as oh, the kind of person who would just want to be with one person. And the fundamental difference between the way they view relationships, no matter how much they respect one another and love one another and are attracted to one another is a very real reason for them to be kept apart so it never actually feels like we're just being strung along for no reason at all
3: but i actually want to go back about five minutes and completely disagree with uh, you that they don't uh, that this is a place where they aren't communicating their feelings because i think that they are communicating their feelings very clearly and mutually choosing there's no misunderstanding between them about where they stand not after the first season but even earlier than that I feel they're very clear they just don't communicate with words but they're not hiding it and they're not being inexplicit about it and they 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 know where they stand
2: yeah everything's pretty much on the table in terms of like they've sort of mutually agreed with a lot of lingering glances what to talk about and what not to sure. but i more meant you know they they don't have heart to hearts about that specific topic very but often i don't
3: think that this pairing needs to to be understood like to, to me the fascinating thing that this show does that many um, perhaps pure romance i don't know if this is part of the beach sheet or not do do is uh, the miscommunication and the confusion between the partners. This show doesn't have that. They don't need to have the conversation to know where they stand. But I know that Alex in particular has some feelings about the, it has been umpteen million years and our feelings are clear possibly to astronauts, but have we talked about them? No. (sighs)
1: True. I do have a lot of feelings about this. (sighs) (laughs) Sigh. I don't actually... (sighs) Ask me a specific question about this so that I can let – because, like, otherwise I'll just sit here making, like, frustrated noises. <laughs> okay, so when, when is when is
0: miscommunication annoying and when is it used well to elicit feelings? What's the difference between those? A lot those? of
1: times when I get annoyed with this trope of, of miscommunication, it's because the characters are being kind of unbelievably oblivious. Mm -hmm. Now, there are situations where you might not notice another person's feelings. But, I mean, if you are a human dealing with other human beings, most people will eventually start to notice that another person, I don't know, likes them at all. And (laughs) in actual real human interaction, I feel like it's a lot harder to have that kind of ongoing miscommunication of, oh, I don't know, I think this person might really secretly hate me and I, I don't know if they they like me at all like you can keep your your romance feelings of I'm in love with this person secret but it's a lot harder to keep the feeling of I like this person and I like being around them secret.
3: I think that's true I mean how did you feel about how our fanfic tentpole theft of theft of assets did this because there's a lot of kind of hidden feelings and
1: miscommunication in that one In that one, that's one of the special cases, because in that one, you have a character who has been through some severe emotional abuse. And Mm -hmm. that is one of the things which can blind you to dealing with other people's feelings and assessing other people's feelings in a accurate, effective kind of way. Because your own... Your own sort of measuring stick is so skewed and fucked up.
0: Macy, do you want to just quickly outline uh, what Theft of Assets is and what it's about? Like the setup of it in terms of tropes and romance. There are
3: some tropes in this fanfic. (laughs) (laughs) Honey, I got tropes in your fanfic. Anyway, so this is a romance novella fanfic about... um, It's a Neville Draco fanfic, which made I'm sorry, people.
2: Listen, I cannot believe you got us. She to made me. us
1: read Neville Draco.
3: Listen, friends, wildly
2: I... OOC. Yes,
3: no. no well, one second. One second. <laughs> what I made you? <laughs> what I made you read? Let's be honest here. Was Neville slash a male Slytherin OC? It's <laughs> true. That That's is true. Very, yeah, pretty much. That is accurate. This is not Draco. This is a. Well brought up, nice young man from an emotionally abusive noble household, who is in Slytherin and is very polite and kind of useless with spells.
1: And his name just so happens to be. His Drake. name
3: just so happens. It's to be Drago Draco Malfoy. Malfoy. Yes, Dr- Draco Malfoy. Anyway, <laughs> um, so let Dragon Bad Faith. Yes, Dragon Bad Faith. Um, <laughs> let us take it as read that this is not Draco Malfoy and sees to assess the pick on, on that. But on its own merits, this is a childhood lover's trope and a forced marriage to avoid legal trouble trope, which is a classic, mm-hmm. and a waifish romantic partner with long blonde hair trope.
0: <laughs> and, and a... <laughs> well, well, that's fair. I think that's, that's fair. That's a trope. No, I mean, come on. I feel personally
2: uh, and... attacked. <laughs>
0: Listen. Commander and I will take Captain Prince and just go sit in the corner. No, okay. I was about to say, if you call <laughs> Laurent a waif... No. Like, exactly. come along,
3: friend. Um, We can put him in the box with Yori Pozetsky and see what happens. Anyway, the point that we were getting to, this is a fic with a Draco Malfoy who has been very much abused by his father, and he agrees to a legal settlement with Neville about his virginity. He agrees to marry Neville, which nobody expected. And so you have this this fic where the not Draco Draco is kind of left at home alone to pine and have nothing to do and wish that Neville still loved him and try quietly to read all the papers to figure out who else Neville was dating in the time in between because Draco <laughs> has never been with anybody else.
2: Um, I think it. I think we should be a little bit more specific about the the premise of the mm-hmm. fic in case people haven't read it. Specifically, when when Draco and Neville were sleeping together at Hogwarts, apparently there's some there's some world building aspect in like I guess pure blood wizard society where losing your virginity is like a big deal. Tm. Mm-hmm. And when Lucius finds out that Draco is not a virgin and that furthermore he lost his virginity to Neville fucking Longbottom, he's like, nah, I'm suing him. Like, that's a destruction of property. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Theft of, of assets. Like he took your virginity. That's not cool. Because apparently you can do that. And he basically he basically charges Neville with essentially rape. Yeah. And one of the options that Neville one of the options that Neville and his ca- his counsel come up with is, well, to right this wrong, I will marry Draco and give you a lot of money and that is what draco accepts which i don't think anyone was expecting except yeah. for poor draco who's just <laughs> very a sad boy he's a sad boy who is sad yes <laughs> so that's the that's very the umbrella sad. of like we have this this former um you know these these former lovers who were sort of torn apart and then neville's operating under the assumption that that he did something horrible to draco and that this is kind of deserved and yeah it's there's a whole lot of feels so and stuff And they're both just, they don't talk. And it's
3: a fairly classic example of that trope, I think. But it's done well, I think.
2: Yeah. At no point did I I think that, like, a simple... Because they tried to have conversations throughout. Mm -hmm. Like, one or both of them would try to say a thing and then just sort of not... They were banging their head against the wall, not knowing how to (laughs) communicate with each other. And they didn't... Like, Draco's not going to sit down and be like, actually... (laughs) my father abused abuses me and the you know i'm i'm my magic has gone wonky like he wasn't gonna sit down and lay out every single element of his trauma for neville to like solve the puzzle and vice versa like neville wasn't gonna sit down and be like actually i was in love with you and i think i did something terrible to you and now i'm like paying penance for that and i can't stand it and that's why
0: it works yes. as a, a use of the miscommunication threat because there are good solid reasons in the setup and in the characters yes. for them not to have that conversation exactly. i think it, and you're thinking about writing romance where the inner, internal conflict is or the conflict between the characters as opposed to like the external plot forces is based in either a misunderstanding or a miscommunication you have for it to work you have to have very solid character reasons so i'm going to jump very quickly talking about the book that I wrote, that you have all yeah. read now. Yes. 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 And I'm so, so... Real quick, real a, quick.
1: I'm so excited that we get to talk about Freya's book this week. I think I have, ref- I have referred to it. Well, the thing is, like, we've been talking about my book quite a lot in the last <laughs> few episodes, <laughs> and so I love Freya's book so much. Let me just take this moment. I love oh Freya's God. book, you guys. <laughs> I love it so much. Okay, sorry. Go ahead.
0: So, very briefly one of the things that keeps the characters from being completely honest with one another and that is building up towards a central fight and conflict is the fact that one of them is keeping a lot of secrets Mm -hmm. from the other. And there had to be a very legitimate character reason why that person would be keeping those secrets. And I based a lot of it in the fact that he's somebody who actually has a fairly rough and insecure sense of self So he's very charming, he's very flirtatious, he knows he can get people to like him very easily, uh, but he he does care deeply about what his loved ones think of him, and he perceives himself as being not what they want, like he's failed in what his family wants out of him, and he's reacted by just running off and being like, okay, I'm just going to pretend to be somebody else because the person that I truly am is not somebody who is worthwhile and lovable. So he comes across as much more confident than the other character,
3: and I think that um, this is something that echoes back to the episode we did on Unreliable
1: Narrators. Everything always echoes mm-hmm. back to Unreliable mm. Narrators, but yes, go ahead. Yes!
3: But specifically, I wanted, to talk, I wanted to talk about a pair of Yuri on Ice fics that I really enjoy. There's a whole bunch of um, this kind of miscommunication fanfic in Yuri on Ice fandom, particularly when it's set you know, before or during canon, because Yuri is such an unreliable narrator he doesn't believe he's worth anything, right? And so I think that with fanfic, you can kind of narrow down on specific characters and how they are unreliable and how they lie to others. I wanted to talk about these two just because I find them really amusing. One of them is called Victor Effing Nikiforov, which I can't pronounce. And the other is called I Know My Madness. And they are both almost identical fics. They are both fics about what happens when uh, Yuri doesn't blow his, Grand Prix Final, and
1: Does Blow (laughs) Victor. That was very elegantly done, well done. Listen, both of them... I'm being serious, you don't have to say listen at me, that was beautifully done, I'm proud of you. I can't take credit for it, I'm about to
3: explain, both of these authors wrote almost identical fics, and posted within like a week or two of each other, having never spoken to one another, and... (laughs) This is the beauty of fandom, because they enlist such feelings in me that I will read both of those fics, and I will wreck both of those fics, regardless of that fact. But, specifically, miscommunication in fandom, I think that we do learn characters, right? And we learn which characters we can make be unreliable in what ways, because we revisit them and revisit them like we're playing Groundhog Day. And I know, for example, Freya, you've written a lot of things in Captive Prince, um, where perhaps Laurent or Damon you grow very familiar with how they miscommunicate and how they keep secrets.
0: Yes and that's why in fandom you can write 40, 50 AUs of the same pairing because people are expecting the core part of the relationship that gave them the feelings in the first place Um, and but you can just transplant that and that's what a good AU is about. It's about saying, well, let's take the core of the feelings and we'll just dress it up in a nice hat.
3: And I wonder if this is part of why we see some of the fanfic romance tropes uh, that are unique to fandom that kind of boil over into romance worlds sometimes a bit later on, but they're just so off the wall. They're just weird, but amazing. Like, <laughs> I don't know, um, like Verse or... Okay. That is the cutest way I've ever
2: heard that say in my oh, life. Yeah, seriously. I <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> so the the thing with Omega is that oh Does my I god, you say
2: it too. <laughs> what? <laughs> we are the Americans. We're just like what they say. Um, Omegaverse Omega Verse in America, and it's hilarious.
1: Uh, Americans would say it Omega but that just sounds
2: like Omega. A Wait, I mean yes, yes, it's like a giant
0: Omegaverse. Omega Verse. Omega. I can't. <laughs> no.
2: Listen to us having
0: cultural exchanges. <laughs> so, but AmigaVerse, however you say it, was actually a fanfic creation. Like it came out of fandom. Yes, exactly. And now it is a pro romance genre, which it's... I. Yeah. What? well Yeah, yeah.
3: Not a, a genre. Would you say a genre, Amanda? Yes, it's a subgenre. Oh, it's
1: in pro romance yep. now. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Amanda, tell us. Tell us things.
2: I'm going to throw down, I'm going to give you some knowledge if you're not aware. Um, So there's been a long history of, like, paranormal romance um, subgenres having stories about, like, werewolves and having stories about shapeshifters. Like, that's been long established. It's been around since...
1: Since about five minutes after werewolves were invented, let's be honest.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Some of them are
1: even bears.
2: There is some really weird shit in terms
0: (laughs) of the kinds of animals. Every time I'm like, nah, that would not be a real thing. You can find it.
2: Someone has made a shifter novel about it. Yeah, my favorite example is yeah. Hedgehogs. There's, like, a really cute series oh. that Piper Vaughn wrote that's about hedgehogs. Um, and I'm just like, I love hedgehogs, but I don't want to read about hedgehog shifters. It's really cute, though. <laughs> See, for
0: me, this just comes into my, like, complete disinterest in animal books. It's like, why would you take a perfectly good romance novel and turn it into an animal? novel? I don't care.
2: And it isn't even, like, a sexy animal. <laughs> and I put um, sexy in, like, seven quotes. <laughs> um It's not even like a panther or a lot. Like it's not some big like predator. Predator. It's a little baby hedgehog that like curls up into. I guess. I guess that's like a woobification yeah. thing. Like you want that sort of helpless. Maybe. Those are weird. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I was gonna. I was gonna get. Yeah. I was gonna get back to Um Omega first. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna say it any other yes. way. So the way that it. It's. The way that it represents itself in fandom is um either mm. as Omegaverse or as Alpha, Beta, Omega, or as if you aren't writing like exact ABO, Alpha, Beta, Omega fic, you would just call it like shifter stuff, but it it gained a lot of popularity yeah. during Teen Wolf because people loved their mm. Steric and they loved to give yes, uh, Derek some funky genitalia, so they were like, sure, what can we sure. do? We're gonna stick a knot on it and we're gonna we're gonna call that good. And that became sort of the um the sexual mm. component to ABO. Like it started with I, um transposing I think you've ever seen one um, very important uh, characteristic of the Omega. The the self-lubricating butt or the imprint? <laughs> <laughs> like there's a lot going on there.
3: <laughs> I just wanted to make somebody
0: else say self-lubricating.
3: Oh hey, we
1: said
0: of I'm so proud of us. Take, Take a, a shot. shot. <laughs> very good. But I think, but part of part of the megaverse is about that world building. Mm-hmm. This idea of that it's it's almost like a it's almost like gender roles yeah. in fandom will then do some interesting things with the world building around it because there's kind of variance in what's accepted. And I must admit, because I don't read this in pro romance, I've only I'm aware that people are doing it, but I'm not quite sure to what extent it overlaps with shifters and things. Because for me, I don't get how it's eliciting feelings. It's just a trope that does nothing for me,
2: but it clearly works for a lot of people. It does, yeah. I I can't say that I've I I don't read like ABO or shifter stuff. I do most of it in my work, but sometimes like, oh good, I love that author. Oh look, they wrote ABO. Guess I'm reading it. But uh, like, we all know that if Acela wrote that, we'd be on it. That's true. Yeah,
1: you got You got to admit, yeah.
2: We'd have to <laughs> stop the call. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'd it. come back and be like, shit. <laughs> She'd do something subversive.
3: But I think that the world building point's a really great one for it uh there are a whole bunch of really very SFNF world building type tropes that are characteristic of fanfic romance. So the other one I was thinking of was mm. Soul Bonds and like all the different soulmate stuff, there's so many variants on that.
2: Yeah. And then like the mental, I mean, that goes back to it's sometimes in shifter stuff and ABO Mm -hmm. and whatever. But like um, some of the early Soulbond stuff was like Kirk Spock and um, in in, like fandom and slash fandom. Um, And now that's it's become such a a trope divorced from its origins, like it's in every fandom. It doesn't matter if that fandom has uh, existing speculative elements or not but uh it's also not as big of a deal in pro romance at all soulmates are sort of like if you read romance you probably subscribe to the idea of certain types of monogamy and mm-hmm. certain types of sort of like we we all get that this is a romance so it is kind of preordained so you don't see a lot of like i woke up with my soulmates like named on my wrist or whatever that's kind of fandom exclusive
3: but i think that it does it it does what we were saying earlier like fandom can really whittle down to the exact emotions of a core relationship between two characters and so it's almost like we know the relationship and the people involved so well already that this set dressing is just an interesting new way to and explore that whereas in a pro romance yeah. you you kind of have a lot more stuff to build in there and you aren't it doesn't matter to you that Otobek has found his perfect romance with someone, but he doesn't know their name because who the fuck is Otobek when that's an original yeah.
2: character that you've never met before in your life? But it is—it does make a lot of sense of why we see so many um, like mate and shifter stories in pro romance because there's already sort of insta love, mm-hmm. there's already sort of love at first sight as a as a caveat. So for that to work in pro romance, just being like, oh yes, I smelled my mate. Now it's time to fuck. <laughs> like. <laughs> What, 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 you know, external complications will be in the way of my goal? Yeah. And in
0: fandom, I think in fandom, we, we have this, we come to it with our knowledge of the characters and we know that, you know, in our heart of hearts that these two characters should be together and they're perfect for each other. And that's why I think some of the more speculative tropes that are quite common in fan fiction, I'm thinking of like sex pollen and telepathy about an immediate forced intimacy.
3: Mm. And an immediate mm-hmm.
0: forced knowledge of one another. I think we, I know we've talked about this before this idea of the thing that elicits the most romantic feelings and makes us yearn is the idea of being seen and known. Mm-hmm. And so something yeah. like telepathy and, and anything to, to do with that is this idea that suddenly forces these two people that we as an audience or as the readers know into a better understanding of one another. And then we want to watch them fall into that. Yeah. Do we want to talk a little bit more about? Sort of more profic or like science fiction, fantasy romances. So we've talked a lot about romance stories and romance capital R and fanfic romance. What about some stories that do romance subplots, but in a way that we really like?
3: I find this really interesting in YA because it's almost expected that a YA book will have a romance plotline, right? Mm. It's interesting because you can they have to be very compressed, right? Because they don't actually have a ton of space on the page to start with. A typical YA contemporary will run in the, what, 60,000 to 75,000. If you're talking fantasy, you might get 75 to 85. And you've got to build in a plot as well. So they can seem very kind of curtailed and shorthandish. But I think that they do still work. They have to carry double duty because they can't just be feelings. They can't just be inducing feelings in the reader. They also have to enhance the plot and the themes of the book. So that's a lot of weight to carry for a small subplot. And I think that that carries through to adult uh, fantasy and science fiction as well. They don't tend to have as much page time dedicated to them. No. no. But one romance that I did want to mention in professional fantasy novel was Cushiel's Dart and the long-running tension between Phaedra and what was the... Jocelyn? Jocelyn, yes. Because I think that one... Does almost a fryony jack thing,
1: yes, it does, and it also has flavors of that liege vassal, yes. which makes me devolve into a puddle of primordial soup
3: there and they're so dedicated to dedicated to each other, and they have the the best trope the we must never touch
1: yes i was going to mention that one too that is the best trope that's the best and then trope. and then they do and touch they do and touch. then they angst about having touched and it sounds like they've got more time and space
0: to put that romance through so you're talking Macy, that in ya the romance is expected to be there and maybe not to reach a full conclusion but to have at least some kind of romance arc But the Cushiels, it's a a few books, isn't it? And they're quite long fantasy books, so you've got a little bit more time to relax into that unresolved tension. So it's interesting to think about how you write, if you've got to balance all of those other aspects, how do you put in a compelling romance that's going to give people feelings when you're not actually writing a romance book, per se?
3: It's super interesting to watch um, who does it effectively because, for example, I really enjoyed the way that Sarah Reese Brennan did her telepathically linked um, plucky girl reporter and mysterious heir to the weird house on the hill in Unspoken. Was that the uh, first the one? The books? Yeah, I think so. Untold? Yeah, the Lindburn legacy. Uh, I felt even it was a trilogy and the romance did go over the whole trilogy, but I felt that even in the first book it was a very effective one despite the small amount of space. And, yeah. you know, and, she, and,
1: she, and I
0: think she did that by sh- doing a little bit of the work off the page before the book started because they had this mm-hmm. telepathic connection where they'd been talking for a while.
3: I think that's a, that's a super good point, and it's a super good like, craft mm. tip, is if you're going to include feelings in your novel as a subplot, Don't try to show everything. Try to insinuate
0: that there is an iceberg here. Or start them off somewhere. So start them Mm -hmm. off as friends or start them off as enemies so that even on page one, they've got some kind of strong feeling about the other person so that you can take that feeling somewhere. You can transmute the Mm. feelings of rivalry or admiration or even just like comfort and respect into love or attraction across the course of the book. But I think it is difficult if you are trying to, show a romantic subplot from meeting the person cold to you know at least some kind of resolution of the romantic arc if you've got to try to show all of that in a short space where it is a secondary plot to a more exciting fantasy plot or a contemporary plot that's when you run into trouble of eliciting yes. feelings because you really have to you can't lift everything all at once
3: and I, I think. think that to me the uh key thing with feelings in having a relationship arc is that something does have to change, right? Even if you can't dedicate a ton of space to it, you have to get the reader invested in where they are, and then you have to shift.
0: Well, I, do, I mean, Sarah, Sarah Reese Brennan does do that very well in, in Other Lands, mm-hmm. I have to say. But that is
2: it. Sarah knows her stuff. She job. does know her
0: stuff. I've, She's very good great. at feelings. But yeah, she does a very good job of, of I mean, in Other Lands it's interesting because it is a fantasy that has fantasy plots around the war and mm-hmm. things like that. But I would argue that I think Elliot's Relationships are sort of the A-plot, even though really? it's not it's not marketed as a romance novel, and it's not all romance, but it's a very relationship-driven book. I think that it's driven
3: by a lot of different things.
0: <laughs> well, I think, I, I think that's why it has done very well amongst the YA fantasies, is that it is a very relationship-heavy book. And I can hold up against a couple of other YA fantasies that I've read in the past year or so where I enjoyed the concept, but my emotions weren't engaged really. And sometimes maybe the romance did actually feel a little bit sort of added on at the end, or I guess I have to have a romance.
3: I think that's the thing for me is that the feelings have to serve the book. You read a book to get an experience, right? And you don't always know which one exactly you're looking for. But I think when you're reading a pro-romance or a piece of fan fiction that is marketed as romantic, you are after a certain shape of feelings. And you don't always want that in a different book that just happens to have a romantic subplot,
0: Amanda, from the point of view of an editor of romance, when you're reading a non-romance book, if you ever have any time to do that, <laughs> um, what do you? What do you? What would make you stop and go? Oh, this person really knows what they're doing in terms of you know eliciting feelings or eliciting romance. If it's not something that you're you know, coming at from a professional point of view, as this is a romance book,
2: a couple of different things: an awareness of tropes because. Romance tropes are pretty universal. And if you, you stick them in your otherwise pretty straightforward, I don't know, speculative piece, I'm going to notice like if there's suddenly like forced proximity or bed sharing or whatever, I'd be like, aha, I see you. I know what you're doing. But on top of that, I would say external forces having to do with the relationship making things complicated and mm. not just internal forces. And I know we talk about romance having a lot to do with the internal feelings of the characters but honestly most of the time when romance is effective it is a combination of the external forces are the reason why they can't be together or why there's a misunderstanding like if you don't have something that
3: if a good example of that might be have any of the rest of you read the tiger's daughter
1: Ah, uh, no, not yet. No, no. It's, on my f-
2: it's on my Kindle with every other thing that I haven't read yet. But it, it has
3: some good examples of, like, external forces interfering as well. Like, the romance isn't something that you could excise from the novel.
2: Yeah. I
0: think, yeah, but I think if you also rely too heavily on that, you get frustrated readers. Like, I'm thinking of Isabel Carmody, uh, who is an Australian fantasy author, who can do amazingly good fantasy world-building and plots, but... One of the most frustrating things as someone who was reading her books as a teenager is that she clearly had no idea what to do for romance so she would sort of get her main pairing to a certain point and then be like, "And now one of them has to go overseas for reasons <laughs> and just <to> separate them <laughs> geographically for two books. Just because she's clearly just like and now they have to be kept apart because I don't know what
3: we do. Now. I think this is maybe a good summary <laughs> then of some of the, the challenges of feelings. You've got to do just enough and not too much.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. And thank you again to Amanda Jean for lending us her expertise and, of course, her feelings. Our feelings. We have so many, and we do so enjoy sharing them all with you. On the next episode, two weeks hence, on the 23rd of May, we'll be discussing space empires, everything from imperialism and colonialism to space royalty and arranged marriages. Yes, those again. So, if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. All our individual social media handles are listed on the show's about pages, and as always, we would love to hear from you. Questions? Comments? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, your feelings they're valid, even if they are about hedgehogs.